Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. Thank you for joining us once again for another episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast. Before we start, just a reminder to please follow us on iTunes or your or your a podcast app of choice give us a rating you can also email us at hello old sports at gmail.com with any thoughts questions show ideas feedback you name it i am joined as always by my brother and co-host andrew newman and we also have two very special guests with us today we have mr lenny shulman and mr paul volponi who are here to talk about their recently published book, Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling. And if you don't know who Phyllis George is, we will get into that all very soon. And it's a really interesting and inspiring story that we think it's important for you all to learn about. Andrew and I both enjoyed the book very much. And so, Paul and Lenny, thanks so much for joining us. And Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well, Dan. We're uh, in the middle of a bit of a cold, rainy snap here in, in New York, making it uh, a little tough to enjoy, enjoy the fall weather. But um, overall, I'm doing well. I'm excited for tonight's topic. I did a lot of reading of this book while we were on our trip to Green Bay a couple of weeks ago with our father. That's right. So, um, yep, I've used a lot of the flight time and waiting around time to, to read a good amount of this book. So I'm ready to get going. Great. Well, um. Thank you both again for joining us. And we um, really enjoyed the book, like I said. And I think probably just to start, we would just ask sort of the the basic question. If somebody doesn't know who Phyllis George is, what made you want to write about her and what should we know about her story? Lenny, you want to jump in? Or you want me to take? Go ahead, Paul. Well, listen, I, I knew who Phyllis George was growing up. I watched her on TV. I, I thought she was really interesting. But after she passed away, and I had always wanted to interview her. Lenny and I work in the field of uh, horse racing. I knew that she had covered some horse racing. I always had her on my list uh, to be interviewed. Uh, when she passed away, it was like, oh, man, there's an opportunity lost. And I wound up just looking her up. And I found out that when she won the Miss America title in 1970, yeah, she was celebrated by half the country. Texas loved her, right? Because she she grew up in Texas. But there was a good half of the country who just hated her for being Miss America. It was it was the time when when the women's liberation movement was really gathering steam and being Miss America, you know, it could be a perk but could also draw the ire of a lot of folks and the women's movement just hated her threw all kinds of stuff at her. And just several years later, when she broke the glass ceiling, she went from being their object of scorn to their heroine. And just that turn right there just hooked me into the story 
And it was something we just, we just had to work on together. And how long did it take you to sort of put this project together? So we, we uh, were, were both reporters by nature and writers by nature. And uh, once we signed the deal, it happened quickly and really organically. Considering Phyllis rose to prominence in the 70s, we were able to reach out and find an unbelievable number of people from her life, uh, going back to her childhood uh, in Texas, going back to the Miss America pageants, uh, her trip to Vietnam with the USO, her time in Kentucky as the first lady and the wife of the governor. Uh, her, later in life, we, in, in really a matter of just a few months, we were able to contact dozens and dozens and dozens of people, all of whom were really anxious to share their insights about Phyllis with us because she had made them feel so special during her life. She was a very uh, people-oriented person who lit up the room wherever she was, and uh, that kind of glow still exists in the memories of, of everybody she touched. And j just to show you how lucky we were, I went to Wikipedia and said, well, who's, who's the Miss America before Phyllis George? Because that woman pinned the crown on her, and Phyllis was the only Miss America ever to lose the crown on the walk down the runway and have it break. She dropped it, right? Yeah. Well, it fell right off her head. So, so I said, I said to myself, I wonder how that woman who pinned it on her felt, looked up her name, said, oh, she won Miss America in Michigan. I'm going to suppose she still lives in Michigan. Picked up the white pages, found her name, called her. It, three minutes later, I was on the phone with Miss America from 1969. Wow. She, just, oh, she wow. just picked up the phone and said, yeah, it's me. And same thing with the woman after Phyllis, because after Phyllis's crown fell, I knew she'd be zeroed in on securing it to the next one's head. So, you know, to get those perspectives, to just call up people and have them pick up the phone and talk to you like it was yesterday was just incredibly lucky. Yeah, and I, I'm guessing that was probably a perk of it being so long ago and that you're going to the people the year before and the year after. I doubt that they're getting a lot of calls. You know, some sometimes it's a subject of people who are constantly getting press inquiries, constantly getting interviews. These are people who maybe it's been a little while. Yeah, they're Miss America, but it's been a long time. So maybe they were, um, you know, you're much more likely to get uh, people to talk to you because they're not people who necessarily are uh, constantly deluged with, you know, press inquiries in the year 2021 or 2020. Well, the, the woman uh, two years after Phyllis, the Miss America two years after Phyllis is a woman named Terry Meusen, who mm -hmm. uh, ended up uh, living in the same apartment building as Phyllis in New York with, uh, after their Miss Americas. And actually, Terry <laughs> has a 30-year run going as Pat Robertson's co-host on the 700 Club. So so actually, she, <laughs> she kind of has been in show business more, uh, more <laughs> or less for, for all her life. But uh, we were able to get athletes who were actually mm. able to get people who were in the uh, public eye. So, you know, a lot of people, like, like I said before, people were just really willing to get behind this when they heard what it was. Yeah, and if you're a sports fan, there's nothing like picking up the phone in your kitchen and you say hello. And the, the voice on the other end goes, is this Paul? 
We go, yeah, this is Dave Cowens, Paul. Heard you wanted to speak to me. That's a cool feeling. And that's something else I want to ask you about. Because so obviously she, you know, she grows up and she wins the Miss America pageant in 1970. And then she moves from there to broadcasting and then and particularly to sports broadcasting. How did she make that transition from Miss America to sports broadcasting? You want to handle that, Lenny? Yeah, I'll go with that. Um, she was uh, studying communications in college, so she kind of always had it in her mind that she wanted to get into that field. Uh, but really, what happened was after her reign as Miss America, she was struggling with, with what to do, and she decided to leave Texas and move to Manhattan and take acting lessons and voice lessons and dancing lessons. And... Um, she ended up being in commercials. She ended up doing a dozen uh, commercials for various uh, people from dishwashing companies to, to, to the cotton industry of America, to everything you could think of, Campbell's Soup. And uh, that kind of got her feet wet uh, in it. At the same time, the people at CBS were wanting to broaden out the universe of their sports audience. And there were some internal papers about how do we do this? And they decided that, you know, the female audience was something they weren't reaching and they wanted to make inroads into that. So there were some uh, visionaries at CBS who wanted to make that jump. And uh, that, that's how it came together. She was the person that they had in mind and uh, they gave her the first crack at it. This is all coming at a very interesting time. You mentioned the her going to CBS and the the Cowan's interview, which I thought was, you know, really interesting to see that thing that opened up a lot of eyes to what she was capable of at CBS. Basically, just going up to Boston without anything in place, and she jumped in Dave Cowan's car right as he was leaving uh, leaving the practice facility. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, after that, it's sort of the, the line to the, the NFL show. And it's, you know, we're a few years after the NFL-AFL merger. TV is, the NFL has always been a TV product, but it's really sort of growing exponentially year over year. And growing up, I would always hear people talk about this CBS show in the 70s with Brent Mersberger and Irv Cross and Jimmy the Greek and Phyllis George. Can you talk a little about just how much of sort of a, cultural force that show and specifically Phyllis George's role on that show was? Well, it took, it took the nation by storm and, and it was, it was more important than the football game for, for a lot of people. And that show really spawned uh, lots of folks. Uh, Mike Pearl and his buddy, whose name escapes me, they worked on the moon landing with Cronkite and uh, they came together over onto that show, did some great things with it. Uh, the personalities were great. It was that time when football was just turning the corner from this sort of Sunday afternoon smash mouth thing to this really thing that they could sell to a lot of folks. And, and it, it seemed like that show just just rode the wave with some great personalities. And who would not have wanted to be there when Jimmy the Greek punched uh, Brett Musburger. <laughs> Beautiful. That must have been. I, I want to get to that in a couple of minutes. Look, Go ahead, let Lenny. Just, let me just add something, guys, that uh, 
This was before the time of ESPN. This was be time, uh, before the time when, you know, networks like HBO were doing football shows. I mean, the NFL today was the place to tune in to get your, you know, football Jones taken care of. And the NFL today, even though it was on Sunday afternoon, which is far from primetime, was one of the highest rated shows of the week, you know, of, of, of any shows, including primetime. Uh, so th- this was a show that had an amazing reach and amazing numbers and amazing influence, uh, even though it was on at a, at a time that's usually a dead time as far as ratings would go. Yeah, they, they took on the mantra, hey, they play the games live. Why can't we do this show live and bend with what's going on around us? That, that was a, a really interesting and almost new take on how to do it. And this was really the first, this is sort of the forefather of everything that's come after the idea, like you said, of a live pregame show where not only did they show the highlights, not only did they talk about the games, but the people on the show, whether it was Phyllis or Jimmy the Greek, who we want to talk more about in a second, obviously they were characters. They were not just guys reading a score. They were part of the attraction of the package that the network was presenting. Yeah, that show was put together beautifully. Uh, uh, the characters were picked well. Uh, they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were after. And and they came up with a gem of a show that, that lasted for a while and really took on a space in American society. So so maybe just tell us a little bit, and Andrew and I know this, obviously, but I think it might be good for you. Tell us about who her co-hosts were on the NFL Today when it first went on the air. Go ahead, Lenny. You run with that. <laughs> well, Brett, Brett Musburger had been a, a reporter. I think he had been a newspaper guy for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, a, a polished host. Uh, and like you said, they, they all had well-defined roles in this show. They were all playing their roles and their characters. And Musburger was the quarterback. Uh, he was the traffic cop who hosted it and kept things moving. Uh, Irv Cross... Uh, had been a standout defensive back, mostly with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. In a, uh, I'd say he played for for at least a decade in the NFL. Uh, and it was groundbreaking to have a black on that show as well. Uh, so kudos to to the producers uh, there also. Irv Cross was a breakthrough character also. Uh, yes. So he was he was the X's and O's guy who had been in the huddle and could talk about the the ins and outs and the plays and all that. Phyllis, I think, found her niche, you know, doing interviews. I, I, I mean, that that's really, she was, she had been a cheerleader uh, in high school. So she knew football to an extent, but she also had her, her back to the field quite a bit as a cheerleader. So she knew it. She wasn't a, you know, just a dumb broad they threw in there. She knew the sport, but she didn't know it enough to do the X's and O's. And I think, what, what would happen is they would send her out every week uh, on Tuesday or Wednesday to do film pieces with the biggest names in the sport or the matchup coming up the following week. And she would fly to Dallas to, to talk to Roger Staubach or she'd go to Hofstra and interview John Namath at the Jets training uh, facility. Uh, wherever in the country the news was, that's where she was. And then, you know, the Greek was brought in, obviously, as 
uh, as betting became a not so secret endeavor uh, in the NFL in those days. And uh, so he was brought in to round out the crew. So it was really, again, well-defined roles, uh, well thought out, well produced. And, you know, they hit it. You know, so, some TV shows just have that chemistry and go. You could say it for sitcoms, you could say it for dramas, and you could say it for this show also. It, it was taxi with football. <laughs> different characters, different backgrounds. You, you hit on something with the Staubach interview, which I think we should touch on. But I think that also sort of a um, fortunate benefit for them is we're talking about the, the CBS pregame show. So, you know, mostly NFC teams. And we're talking about the mid 70s. So we're talking about mostly the Dallas Cowboys. And here you have this not to reduce her to this, but you have this beauty queen from the sort of Dallas, the larger Dallas area, you know, their most prominent team, America's team at that point is the Cowboys. And one of her first assignments is going down to, uh, to interview Roger Staubach. And he really seems to open up in a way that I think caught everybody involved off guard with his answers to really the first couple of questions. Yeah, and it, it was great to uh, to speak to him about the interview. He remembered it well, and uh, yeah, it, it real it really set the tone for the things that would come. Yeah, I'm and just gonna I'll read real quick, and this is on page 72 of your book. So the question was, Roger, you have an all American image. You're kind of a straight guy. Do you enjoy it, or is it a burden? And Storbeck's answer says was, Well, yes, I have a station wagon. I put the kids in the back. We go to church every Sunday. I'll skip over a couple of things. And he says, you know, everyone in the world compares me to Joe Namath. As far as off the field, he's single bachelor swimming or swinging. I'm a man with the family and he's having all the fun. You know, I enjoy sex as much as Joe Namath. Only I do it with one girl. And I mean, that's, you know, he, it's not like she was pressing him about that. He just sort of took it. And I don't even know if he meant to go in that direction, but that's certainly the, uh, yeah. The quote you're looking for if you're doing an interview like that. <laughs> and, and, guy, and guys, you know what? Lenny and I have been turf riders covering horse racing for a long time. And we're both familiar with the great turf rider, Joe Hirsch. And Joe Hirsch was based in New York. And Sonny Werblin went to Joe Hirsch and said, listen, we're, we, we've drafted Joe Namath. He's going to live in, here in New York. Would you live with him? And people <laughs> rain on him. And over the years, Joe, Joe Hirsch has told some stories of what he found in that apartment when he got home and Namath was there. We couldn't tell any of them in the book, and I can't tell any, any of them right now, but they were great stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, as uh, maybe as thanks for having you on the podcast, you could email a couple of them to us just for our own. <laughs> Well, the, the, the thing about really good interviewers, to, to touch on your point, Andrew, is they is they put their subjects at ease. And so you can reach that level uh, where the interviewee feels comfortable enough, as Staubach did, obviously, to come out with answers like that. And, and it's a skill. It's a skill that good interviewers have uh, to, to put their subjects at ease and and. That's that's the that's what you can get. And that was sort of how she came into prominence in the first place, right? When she did that with Cowens. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, Cowens had, had had blatantly said to me, listen, I had this reputation of being hard to talk to. That was all fooey. It wasn't I was hard to talk to. I wanted people to ask me the right questions. People asked me questions that they wanted these really small answers to. 
And I always just yesed them and moved around them because they wanted me to say what they wanted me to say. But if anybody really took the time to talk to me, I would speak with them. So I think Phyllis got kind of got a free ride on me, Cowens would, would, would tell me, because I wasn't hard to talk to at all. I was happy to talk about things that I thought, you know, I should be speaking about. And she gave me the room to do that. So she kind of rode on my coattails as she was able to break me down. I was just waiting for somebody to, to ask me some really good questions. <laughs> I think you need a thoughtful interviewer sometimes to interview a thoughtful athlete. And for those who don't know, Cowens was sort of known as a, a, a guy who was a, sort of a deep thinker and did some interesting things, including, you know, sleeping on a park bench after they won the NBA title one year and, and some other strange things. But he was a he was an interesting guy um, and a great player, too, obviously. He also drove a cab one night. Yeah, that was the other thing, too. Yeah, I think he, I think he actually for for might have been more than one night. I think he when he left the team for a couple of weeks and was working as a cab driver in Boston. He's a really, really interesting guy. Um, hey, my cab drive is six foot seven. Exactly. Exactly. So you talked about Musburger and cross. And we've talked about Jimmy, the Greek a little bit. How was she received by those three on the set as they were doing the show? What was that relationship or what were those relationships like? Well, I, I would take the uh, the, the Greek. Uh, uh, that relationship was not good. Uh, he clearly resented her presence. He resented everybody, actually. Uh, any, anybody who got camera time that he didn't get, he resented. But she uh, told several uh, stories about how uncomfortable uh, the Greek made her feel at various times, uh, very intimidating toward her and not friendly at all. So that was, and the funny thing was, the Greek was very friendly with her uh, husband uh, to be, uh, Governor, uh, well, John Y. Brown Jr. Uh, they were gambling buddies uh, in Vegas. So he was friendly with him, but the relationship with her was never good and deteriorated uh, over time from, from, from not being good to begin with. Musburger, I, I don't know. We one of our failures, I would say, was that we could never get Musburger to speak with us, and I don't know why. He has a reputation of being difficult, and um, while, while on the surface they seem to get along, I have spoken to other people who worked uh, with him uh, who were not comfortable working with him and whose lives he did not make easy. So. I don't I don't know that he's the greatest guy in the world or of cross. I think by all accounts was a really mellow and, and, and cool guy. But uh, she the, the one thing about Phyllis, as much crap as she had to take for for kind of being the Jackie Robinson for for women's sportscasters, she never said boo. I mean, she never took a step backward. She never complained that this one said this or this one said that. She was amazingly straightforward, didn't whine about anything, didn't complain about anything. And whatever shortcomings other people treated her with, uh, she internalized and really did not make it a, a cause celebrate to, to, to say, hey, uh, this one's unfair, that one's unfair. She just she plowed forward with it. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, her producer, Louis Schmidt, who we did a lot of work here with a lot of interviewing. He, he made it clear to us that before he came along, uh, Phyllis went through two or three producers working on these pieces with her, and mm -hmm. none of the producers really wanted to work with her. 
and and the work really didn't shine until Lewis Schmidt, who came along, really was happy to have her there and and try to put her in positions to succeed. And she basically, after that first you know time, she pretty much insisted that she uh, he produced all of her stuff going forward. After that, right? Yeah. Well, she, yeah, she she became a star. You know, she mm. she yeah. At, at that point, she she could you know say who she wanted because. She was a star anywhere she went, you know, it was like a celebrity, you know, like any other celebrity going somewhere, uh, you know, the, the public really, well, most of the public, of course, you had people who would never, you know, cozy up to her because mm. she was a woman in a man's world. But, uh, but, you know, she became a huge star and a huge celebrity and everybody knew it on that production uh, as well as outside of it. It seems like, and you mentioned sort of her poise and not publicly, you know, making issues about the way she was treated by certain people. It seems like if we go all the way back to Denton, Texas, when she's growing up, that her, not specifically for this job, but just in general, that her mother was almost grooming her from the start of her life to be in sort of these high profile, high scrutiny positions, sort of always making sure she was you know, prepared and going to, what was it, the piano lessons and different sort of classes and schooling and, and sort of an upbringing of um, making sure she was exemplary in pretty much every regard and prepared for uh, what life was going to have in store for her. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true, Andrew. Um, you know, she definitely had a strong guiding hand uh, mm-hmm. on her daughter, uh, making sure she didn't get way late or go off the beaten track too far. Uh, and and it's really a, a classic story, right? I mean, uh, anybody who remembers Fear Strikes Out, the Jimmy Pearsall story with, with Carl Malden and, uh, and Tony, um, who's the guy from Psycho? Uh, why am I drawing a blank? Tony Perkins. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, well, that was, that was the extreme example of the overbearing parent trying to mold the, uh, the, the child. But, you know, this wasn't quite that, but there's no mistake in that Phyllis's mom uh, knew she had something special there. Yeah, she sent her for piano lessons at a really early age with a world-renowned piano teacher. Uh, you know, Phyllis went to uh, speech classes in school where, where she learned how to get the Texas drawl out of, out of her presentation. Uh, certainly preparing for Miss America, you know, takes an awful lot of prepping and an awful lot of training. And and an awful lot of talent. So yeah, there, there was a strong guiding hand there. Uh, the mom surely knew that she had something there. I couldn't foresee what direction it was going in, but but there, there, there certainly was that avenue that she was going to be bigger than Denton, Texas. Yeah. And that's, I just, you, throughout the book, you kind of, I kind of went back to those sort of the early years with her mother and, and almost everything was preparing her for a life that was going to be, you know, a little under a little bit more of a microscope than you might expect growing up and where and when she did. So why did she leave the show after a couple of years? She leaves in the mid seventies or late seventies and then comes back a couple of years later. Well, she was on maternity leave for a while. Yeah, she uh, she started a family. Uh, she she had two children in uh, well, not rapid succession, but a couple of years apart. Uh, so yeah, I th- I think she was she was looking to to expand again, and uh, Paul documents it really well. Uh, her move 
onto the uh, news side of things. You know, she uh, she had a career on the uh, CBS Morning News with Bill Curtis. And after a while, she she sought to broaden out from sports and try to bring the magic she had with sports into into morning news. Didn't work out quite as successfully as the sports thing did, but uh, you're right. She did take a couple of breaks and did come back, but some of it was family stuff, and then some of it was, uh, you know, career choices. And how about this? She leaves football to go to the morning news, gets paid a million dollars a year to do it, and everyone in that newsroom despises her <laughs> because she's got no experience broadcasting the news and she's making five times what everybody else is making. That's tough to carry. Yeah. The, the news section, uh, her stint, what was it? 85 that she was on the, uh, the, the news on the morning and CBS. That part is very interesting to me because it's, you know, there were some other projects she did that maybe didn't last super long, like the people TV show, but it seemed like she was, a good fit and successful in the role that she had. The news is sort of the first one where you kind of take away from it that it was just a failure, you know, for a lot of reasons, it sounds like she'd been told what, that they were going to kind of make it more of a softer news program, but that everybody involved internally kind of resisted that and wanted to keep it as what it had traditionally been. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. And and imagine being her, having that target on your back, walking into a major newsroom, gathering everybody around during the morning meeting, saying, I'd like to interview this famous person, but that famous person had been assassinated two years earlier. Jeez. So, I mean, you know, from people looking down on you, what a wire to trip over. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's one of those where there's, if you were in a hole already, that just kind of digs you deeper. I guess the one thing you can say about that tenure is it seems like it was mercifully over pretty quick. Both she and CBS realized that it probably was not going to work out long term, right? Well, don't yeah. forget, she she followed Diane Sawyer and that's Yeah, well, yeah. Exactly. In, in fairness, CBS uh, was in the basement of ratings for their morning news show to begin with. Mm-hmm. So they were a little desperate to t- try to change things around so bringing her in and trying to soften the news was was an idea on paper that made some sense but you know there was nothing that could be blamed on her because they were in third place when she started and then they were in third place when 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 she when when she was fired off of it so so you know it it, it didn't work but you know they were at, it, it, it was a heavy lift I want to move on to some other aspects of her life. But before we do, especially because you devote an entire brief chapter to it and you alluded to it a few minutes ago, this fight between Jimmy the Greek and Brent Musburger. Tell us a little bit about that and sort of the the role that she was purported to have played or at least maybe blamed for it a little more than she should have been. Well, I don't think she played any role in it at all, but the newspapers kind of seized on it and said, oh, these two guys are fighting over her or or whatever she said spurred it on. And uh, that's pretty interesting for some tabloids to go for. Well, yeah, the the fight actually happened because Musburger was being a jerk. Jimmy the Greek had uncovered this big uh, scoop about uh, Notre Dame's hiring of a high school 
football coach to be their next football coach, which is what unheard of, obviously. It's you know, fit, most famous football program in the country at that point, and, and they're hiring a high school coach, and the Greek had this scoop on it, and he was about to reveal it on the, on the NFL today, and Musburger in his lead-in stepped all over it and said, oh, we understand that, you know, Jerry Faust is being hired uh, as Notre Dame's coach. You know, uh, Greek, what, what do you know about that? So, so Musburger stepped all over the Greek story, the Greek resented it and punched them in the face later that night. <laughs> but the, the interesting part, going back to Phyllis's mom, is uh, the reason why Phyllis was freaking out was she was afraid that the mom, her mom was going to think that it was a love triangle. It, it wasn't really so much that, that it was, it wasn't at all, but she was afraid of the perception and what her mother might think about it. So that, that kind of goes back to the previous question about uh, about her relationship with her mom. Yeah, I thought, you know, going back to when you were talking in the one part of the book with uh, her marriage to Robert Evans, which, yeah. you know, on paper, you could tell is doomed from the start. And there's the story where her mom calls Robert Evans, even though he'd been pretty uh, clear that every part of their marriage falling apart was his fault. And yeah. she was basically trying to say, well, no, I know it must be Phyllis's fault. And that's, um, you know, that sort of seems like a beat on the same note of what you're talking about here is that she was worried just about the rumors that her mother was going to believe the rumors over her, even though, you know, both of those guys had to be what 40 years older than her at that point, or at least Jimmy, the Greek looked like it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure I'm that both of those guys probably deserve to be in a fight. <laughs> yeah. And, and sort of the unspoken thing with all that stuff is I'm sure there was a lot of alcohol and there was definitely a lot of ego involved. And, you know, if it, if it wasn't about that, it would have been about something else eventually that they'd have been punching each other about. Yeah. Yeah. So all the while that she's embarking on this career in sports and in news, she's also married to the governor of Kentucky and serving as first lady of Kentucky. Why don't you tell us a little bit about her husband and how she met him and that whole relationship and that part of her life during this time period? Well, Lenny, before, before you do tell that story, I'm going to go get myself a piece of Kentucky fried chicken and I want to eat it while you tell the story. <laughs> yeah. So she met John Y. Brown actually a little later. Uh, um, you know, she had been, probably four years on the NFL today. Uh, and they had, <laughs> they had met at some parties out in Los Angeles very briefly. And John Y. Brown was, was very smitten with it. John Y. Brown was a, a, a politician's son and, and a lawyer uh, uh, here in Kentucky. It was a businessman, was an entrepreneur from the time he was in high school. He was selling encyclopedias and making money and had 20 people working under his he was just one of those entrepreneurial geniuses uh, who decided that uh, there was this really interesting restaurant called Kentucky Fried Chicken in uh, in Kentucky. And he was really interested in this crazy guy with a white beard who wore a white coat who ran around the country trying to sell his recipe to restaurants all over the place. And so he ended up buying Kentucky Fried Chicken from the Colonel you know, set up the franch franchising of it and made millions and millions of dollars. So in the aftermath of that, he he bought the Kentucky Colonel's ABA basketball team. He eventually owned the, the Celtics for a while. He owned the Buffalo Braves of the NBA for a while. 
Uh, anyway, he was smitten with Phyllis. Uh, their first date in L.A. Uh, turned out to be a disaster because Howard Cosell uh, instigated himself into the middle of it. And and, and I, I believe so Warren unlike Beatty, him to do something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Warren Beatty was involved in there also. It was a crazy night. Anyway, John White Brown didn't get a chance to speak much with Phyllis that night. But subsequently, they they did get together and uh, had this whirlwind romance. And it was on their honeymoon uh, down in the Caribbean when John White Brown decided I'm going to run for governor of Kentucky. The election was two months later, which, of course, in, on a political campaign is pretty much <laughs> it's pretty late in the game to get involved with it. Uh, but they he decided they rushed back from their honeymoon. And uh, in those two months, uh, Phyllis and he crisscrossed Kentucky and it was her incredible celebrity and her ability to draw people uh, to these events that got him elected governor of Kentucky. So it was absolutely because of Phyllis that, that he became governor. You mentioned that he owned the Celtics. And we talked a few minutes ago about how she got unfairly blamed for a fight between two of her co-hosts. She also gets blamed for a trade uh, that the Celtics make for, uh, <laughs> yeah. for Bob McAdoo. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Her favorite player, uh, <laughs> uh, some say. Bob Ryan wrote, I, th- I think Bob Ryan wrote a great story about it this year where Cowens talked about it and someone else in the Boston uh, organization talked about it that, that uh, McAdoo was her favorite player. And uh, John Y. Brown went out and foolishly traded for him and gave away a lot of good stuff. And I read, I don't remember whether it was in your book or in some of my other research that Red Auerbach is so angry by this that he almost quits the Celtics and takes a job with the Knicks, which would have been nice because maybe we would have gotten a championship at some point over the last 45, 50 years. But that's a, <laughs> a little bit of a digression. I just think it's interesting how she ends up touching or, you know, whether it's directly interacting or sort of having some sort of a, a story with so many of these interesting figures, not just in football, not just in politics but you know throughout sports whether it's you know bob mcadoo dave cowens roger staubach howard cosell warren Beatty, you mentioned yeah there's all of these kind of interesting lives that are touched by or that touch her life during also, this yeah, period also also lee strasberg at the actor's studio mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is another interesting story she ran into him he was willing to take her on as a student but uh, she had seen some acting exercise that touched something in her, and she started crying uncontrollably at at the actor's studio. And he went up to her and 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 talked to her about it. And she was so embarrassed by by the crying fit she she took that even though Strasberg was act was offering her free acting lessons, she left and never came back. She she associated well uh, in her life, Dan, to, to, to follow up on, on your point. Some of the people she hung out with later in life were um, Marianne Rogers, who was Kenny Rogers' uh, a, a wife and then ex-wife uh, mm-hmm. during, during those times. A woman named uh, Edwina Johnson, whose husband, Tom Johnson, was the publisher of the Dallas Morning News and ended up starting CNN with Ted Turner. And uh, she was also best pals with a woman named Sherry Lansing, who uh, is very famous in film because she was the first woman to head a Hollywood film studio. She was the head of Paramount Pictures for many years. And so Phyllis was 
great friends with all of these people. And Robert Evans, of course, who was in the middle of being the king of Hollywood in his reign, producing The Godfather, The Godfather 2, Love Story, French Connection. I mean, one hit after another after another. Uh, so that was certainly a, a Cinderella lifestyle that didn't last very long. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but it was, uh, yeah, the quality of her life was very good as far as the uh, people with whom she associated. As we move towards, you know, her run is, um, you know, first lady of Kentucky ends. Ultimately, that marriage ends up ending. Uh, one of the things that kind of took me aback was just how long and just how private she was with once she was diagnosed with the um, what is it? PV is the uh, type of cancer that she was diagnosed with blood disease. Yeah. Uh huh. OK. Yeah. I wasn't going to try to pronounce it, but she <laughs> she was. uh this, that was sometime in what the late eighties that she was uh, was diagnosed with that and kept it to herself for most of the rest of her life. I, I think actually it was kind of toward the earliest eighties or the mid eighties. Oh, okay. But yeah, I, I think in talking to her friends, they felt that she was such a celebrity and such a center of attention everywhere she went that by uh, admitting that, that that she had this thing she felt that it would somehow lessen her in people's eyes. And so she decided to really keep it a secret, even from her best friends, uh, didn't know for years and years and years. But yeah, she, she felt that uh, it would somehow lessen her, uh, you know, out there in the, in the public world. And then she was very brave about it. I had one more question, but Andrew, did you want to get in anything else? Um, no, I guess I was just going to say, it and then there was sort of the last high profile thing she, she did on television was in the, the what, 1994-ish with the Phyllis George specials, which I guess the highlight of them would have had to have been a, interviewing a sitting president of the United States, which at the time was Bill Clinton. Yeah, Bill Clinton was happy to do an interview with uh, former Miss America. <laughs> <laughs> worked well for him. And... Uh, same with Al Gore. You know, she said Al Gore's got a nice butt and they uh, and and cut it out of the show. <laughs> you mentioned they, one of they cut his butt out of the show. Like Elvis, <laughs> like, that would have been interesting. <laughs> they wouldn't film him from the waist down like Elvis in the 50s. <laughs> I like that. One one of Andrew's favorite things to do on the show is to take things literally for comedic effect. <laughs> he does it well. He does. He does it very, very well. So. Then one of the names that you that I see, you know, both interviewed in the book and sort of woven throughout is Leslie Visser, who was herself a, you know, great uh, female sportscaster for decades. What was her relationship when I say her? What was Phyllis George's relationship like with some of the female sports broadcasters that, that came after her? Well, you know, it was it was great to get Leslie Visser. Interesting story. You know, the draft board sent Leslie Visser a, a draft notice because she was covering sports and they figured <laughs> Leslie was a guy. Yeah. So really fun. Uh, Leslie was great to us. Uh, she's certainly, you know, one of the major all time greats as as just someone covering sports, let alone being a woman and, and granting that extra perspective. But her and Phyllis were contemporary. She didn't hero worship Phyllis, but she saw what she was going through and she was going through something similar, maybe just on a smaller level nationally. 
and she was she was more of a regional player. And uh, yeah, she gave us some great insights into Phyllis and 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 told her, you know, Phyllis would walk up to her and, and say, you know, you're on TV today. Here's a five thousand dollar hat that that somebody gave me. Why, why don't you take it? I mean, you can use it. So uh, Phyllis had a really nice uh, streak to her. Plenty of uh, stories, not only for hobnobbing with with important people, but taking a cab somewhere taking a, a liking to the cab driver and bringing him into the party mm-hmm. he's going to. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, the women who came up after Phyllis really appreciated what she did. And I think as they, you know, went through their careers also appreciated how easy she made it look because it wasn't easy. It was very difficult and it was the most difficult for Phyllis there's a woman named Chelsea Canty who was the first woman uh, to do horse racing on on television. And Chelsea uh, stepped in for Phyllis on the NFL Today during one of Phyllis's maternity leaves. And Chelsea had a miserable time on that show. Just a terrible time. Didn't feel like she was being supported by her coworkers there. Just had a, a terrible experience. And she was in awe of how Phyllis had made it look so easy and had, you know, navigated it all, all of those years. So I, I think there's a, a heck of a lot of respect uh, from that first generation that followed Phyllis. I think if you maybe talk to people today, they may not know who she was and don't know the significance that she played in their lives. Uh, but that first generation certainly would have known that and appreciated her for it. And I just I just want to throw this out as great trivia. You guys will like this. Leslie Visser went trick-or-treating as Sam Jones. <laughs> which, which Sam Jones? The Celtics Sam Jones? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, she had a very Boston-centric uh, life. I think her she was married for a while to Dick Stockton. And I think I heard some time that they met the same night at game six of the 75 world series when Carlton yeah, Fisk hit the home true. run. Yeah. So yeah, I heard, actually heard her interviewed on Bob Ryan's podcast a, a few years back. And she told, you know, a lot of interesting stories about her life in sports. And my wife's a Bostonian and Boston sports fan. So anytime I hear the Boston stuff, it always kind of makes my ears perk up a little bit, but it's a really interesting story of Phyllis George. It's a really good book that you both have written. And so please, everybody, check it out. Uh, Paul Volponi and Lenny Shulman, Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, available now wherever books are sold. And I just want to thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, before thank we you go, much. you guys didn't ask us the big question, which is, why did two guys write the book about this woman? Well, go ahead and answer it. We'd love to hear. No women wanted to do it. That's a fair point. That's a good point. No. Hey, and it's it's always great when somebody finds because there's just so many books out there. And I know because I've I've bought most of them. Sometimes I feel like there's so many sports books out there. And whenever you can find a new angle on a story or somebody who's been around for years, it, it's really great to to sort of have a new subject really given the coverage it deserves. So again, thank you both for writing the book and thank you both for joining us. Thanks a lot for having us. We appreciate it. We had a great time. Well, we appreciate having you. And until next time on Hello Old Sports, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports.
This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.